Folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 February 15, 2013, and that means it's time for your calls to the Think Line. We call it the Think Line because we encourage you to think for yourself, and I like calls that make me think. And we also call it the Think Line because, well, it spells out think. Yes, the numbers to call to make a call for a show like this in the future, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You'll notice when I get on the air, I don't say, broadcasting live from northeastern Texas. I say, uh, welcome to an edition of the Survival Podcast. For those that are new to podcasting, that means this show was recorded in the past, either five minutes ago, five days ago, or five years ago, for all I know at the time that you're listening to it. Which means if you call 866-65-THINK and think you're going to talk to me, you're, you're not. You're going to talk to an answering machine. And you're going to leave a message, and it may or may not end up on the air, uh, depending on the question, when it comes in, how many calls came in that week or two, what have you. But we do get about 30 to 40% of the calls on the air. If you follow some simple rules, one, if you're running a weed whacker, a chainsaw, or riding on the back of a motorcycle, before you call in, Stop doing that. Make sure you're in a quiet location. Number two, if you're calling for a cell phone and you want to leave me a message, it doesn't sound like Jack. I would want and I what uh, it and what your thoughts were on this really important. It, 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 you want to leave me a message, doesn't sound like that. Make sure you got a couple bars on your phone before you call. And if you do that, <clears throat> you can you can bet that a call or two will get at least one of them on the air over time. The next thing I need you to do for me, know what the heck you're going to say or ask before you make the phone call and make your point or ask your question in the first 20 seconds of your call and then give me all the details you feel that I need. I probably do need them, but I promise you your call will go better and be more likely to get through the screening process and on the air if you follow these rules. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. It's called Sawtack because they're in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, referred to as Sawtooth Tactical because they have all the tactical things you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Check them out today. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and all the cool stuff that guys like in the prepping world. Ladies, too, but guys, we're the ones that tend to go a little bit overboard. It's a great place to go overboard with tactical stuff. Check them out today. Sawtack.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. You know, there's not a lot you can ask a company to do. Uh, beyond saying, how about this? How about you, you make the name of your company, what you do, and then do that and do it consistently. That's what ReadyMade Resources does. They provide you all the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click buy, sent to you, uh, right to your home with lightning-fast service and shipping, and I mean everything. 12-volt products for your solar and wind stuff, check. Gardening stuff, check. Tactical stuff, check. Practical stuff, check. Long-term food storage, uh, foods, check. Long-term food storage things to make your own, check. You name it, they got it. Firearms, check. No matter what it is, whatever you're looking for, if it's a resource in the prepping world, you'll find it at ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys, I am going to be at the Liberty Forum. Uh, Friday and Saturday of next week are the big days there. Uh, at the Free State Project, I'd love to see some of you guys there. 
And I will be doing a presentation called The Prepared Libertarian. It will focus a little bit on preparedness and a lot on liberty. And I think you guys will enjoy it if you get a chance to show up. I don't know if there's stuff. I imagine they're still selling tickets, but uh, I'm not sure of that. But I hope to see a lot of TSP audience members there. I've said we'll spend a lot of time in the pub discussing liberty. Somebody said, is that really a constructive use of your time? And I said, well, it worked for our founders, didn't it? <laughs> That's the way I kind of view that. I'm going up there, yes, to support their work. I'm going up there, yes, to give a great presentation. But what I'm really doing is taking an opportunity to get to another part of the country so that members of the audience can come hang out with us and spend time with us. Because to me, that's what this is really all about. Meeting with and spending time with members of the audience, I go out of my way to make myself as available as possible on all of these public appearances. And uh, I, I really hope that I see a lot of you guys up there. Also want to remind you about TSP Mint. Uh, we do have the Ant Shield coin shipping. There was a little bit of a delay. You guys ordered almost 7,000 ounces, but don't let that stop you from ordering more. Come on, guys. Um, it's still a great price on silver. We're given the same price that we've been offering uh, since the launch, $1.99 a spot. Sorry, a dollar ninety-nine over spot for members of the MSB and two ninety-nine a spot for non-member. Uh, two dollars and ninety-nine cents over spot for non-members. TSPMint.com is a great way that you guys can make silver part of your long-term investing strategy and support the Survival Podcast and get a great price at the same time. Also, we want to remind you about the TSP Gear Shop, TSPGear.com. Really cool stuff there. Those of you coming to Liberty Forum, I put out an announcement yesterday. If you want to order in advance, you can pick up your gear directly from Kelly John Doe up in New Hampshire and save 10% on all orders. I uh, also want to remind you guys real, real quick here, uh, you can help support this show by joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get tons of discounts, you get content available nowhere else, and it costs about 18.3 cents an episode. The discounts have been put together in such a way that if you're buying stuff in the preparedness, homesteading world, all the stuff we talk about every day, if you're buying stuff throughout the year and you use the discounts, it will more than pay for your membership. And uh, I'll leave it at that today because I want to go ahead and get into taking your first call now. If you only had $200 to spend, what would you buy? Thank you. Well, that goes down as probably the most to-the-point and briefest uh, listener call ever. I didn't edit it. I didn't take anything out other than the sound of the phone hanging up. Uh, so um, you would think maybe it would have one of the quickest, decent, easiest answers ever. It won't be a long answer, but it's not quick and easy because the answer really is it depends um, let's look at it this way. If you only had $200, period, that was all the money to your name, what would I spend it on as far as prepping gear? The answer would be absolutely nothing. I would be making sure that I retain that $200 to get through life for the next couple weeks one way or another as I try to figure out how to come up with more than $200. Now, let's say that I was living my daily life and I said my budget for preparedness right now is only $200 and I need to uh, use that $200 to enhance my preparedness. I'm going to still look at that and go, do I want to spend this all in one shot? I mean, if that's if that's my budget for, let's say, it, there's no way that's my budget for my life, for the rest of my life. Right? I mean, if that's my budget for a year, we're looking at $2,400 a year. I could get all kinds of creative with that, and that would not be true to the spirit of the call. So let's say it's 200 bucks, and I'm saying for the next year, that's, that's all I can scrape up. Honestly, if you can only scrape up $200 for preparedness over the next year, you don't even need to be actually kind of doing it in that mainstream line of prepper thought of I'm going to take this money and I'm going to go buy stuff. 
So would I take that $200 and go out and buy beans and rice with it because that's the biggest bang for the buck as far as calories and, and whatnot and some salvage buckets and shove it in there and stick it down in the basement? Probably not. What I would actually do is I would take that $200 and I would start peppering it throughout my grocery budget and I would probably begin with coffee canning. And I would do things like get a few extra flashlights and things like that to put together a bug out or a, a blackout kit with, not a bug out kit, a blackout kit. I'd be really looking out for any type of really low cost uh, flashlights and stuff like that for that. You know, when they put them in as lost leaders for a buck ninety nine for an LED that's a decent little LED flashlight, I pick up a couple of those. They usually come with some batteries, so I don't have to buy batteries for at least six months for them. I wouldn't depend on those batteries with my life, but I would go ahead and use them while they're in there. Um, and, and I would really begin my in earnest. I would begin copy canning. Uh, because that's going to be a way that you're going to actually find that you do have more than $200 over a, a given year. So I just start buying food you're going to buy anyway and building up the pantry. And, and that would be my first step. I would start laying up water and I would do that for no money whatsoever. I would go out and I would either, if I'm already buying soda, I would use the two liter soda bottles. If I don't use soda, I would find somebody, a family somewhere that uses two liter soda bottles and say, will you save your bottles for me? And I would lay the water up right out of my faucet for nothing. If I was a, a nervous, nilly, worry, wart, pain in the butt, the kind of guys that run IT infrastructure and are afraid that the water's going to go bad, even though I've rinsed out the container, even though water doesn't go bad unless there's something in it to go bad, I'd go get myself a little thing of bleach, and I'd put a drop or two of bleach in each bottle, but I personally wouldn't do that. I'd rotate that water every six months. I would keep my eyes open for when tea lights go on sale as another preparedness item, and I would pick up you know, 100 tea lights for $4 uh, over some period of time that they would show up, and sometimes you can get even a better deal than that on them. But that would be the approach that I would take, $200 is not going to make you ready for the end of the world as we know it. And any inclination or belief that it will is just plain wrong. If There's ways you can say, well, what would you do from a standpoint of self-defense with $200? And the answer is I would probably go find a beat-up shotgun um, in the neighborhood of, a, of a 150 bucks, and I would use the rest of the money on ammo for it. And I probably wouldn't go as cheap as I could on the shotgun and buy myself something like a uh, an NEF single shot or something like that. Even though they're a fine gun for what they are, I'd go find a busted old pump somewhere that you can get for 150, 180 bucks, and I, you could still get a few boxes of shells. And if you can't get it down low enough to buy enough ammo to go with it, then you need to go out and start picking up pop bottles and tin cans. If that's what you know, if you wanted a, a defensive uh, firearm solution, I would look at something like that. Yeah, maybe a mall's in the gun. You can still get for $100 and a bunch of ammo to go with it. If you're worried more about an end times scenario, that would probably be better than a shotgun and a few hundred rounds because uh, it can reach out a bit. But I'd, I'd probably still say for day-to-day -day stuff, go with the shotgun. When you get into these lighter budgets, then we really need to throttle back and think about what I've been teaching you guys for over four years anyway. Order of probability of disaster. So the most likely disaster to occur to you, to occur that will impact you is going to be something that affects a relatively small number of people in the totality of the world. Even something that's fairly large like a regional disaster in the totality of the world, it's a mouse fart. In other words, so let's say 30 million people got affected by Hurricane Sandy. Of those 30 million, probably two to 
4 million really got affected. And that's a lot of people. But what is 2 million in relationship to 7 billion? Right? It wasn't the end of the world as we know it. It's not the apocalypse. And life went on everywhere except ground zero. And even in places like that, we're already in the rebuilding. There's going to be people that are hurting for a long time, lost houses, insurance companies dragging their feet saying, well, we don't really have to cover. I get all that. I'm not belittling the disaster. You guys know how passionate I was about helping those folks. Um, but in, in reality, it's short-term disasters that you're most likely to deal with, including loss of a job. So a person that only has a $200 budget, um, that means they have very low income quotient. Right? That means there's not a lot on the input side coming in financially. And that means that their main goal at that point in their life needs to be making sure they can survive an interruption to an income stream that's already a threadbare income stream. And that means that their main focus in life at that point should be to save and scavenge every penny that they can of extra money and put it away as cash. It does not need to be going as investments. If that's all the money you really can come up with, it does not need to be going as investments. If they're in debt, they need to be taking a second job and killing themselves to get out from under the debt. If you're in debt, like credit card debt, student loan debt and crap, and you can only come up with 200 bucks for preparedness, you have a debt problem. You don't have an income problem, so you need to get rid of the debt. Assuming the debt's gone, then the focus needs to be how do I increase the income or reduce the expenses so I'm not looking at only $200 in disposable income for preparedness. Because the honest answer, and I know people are not going to like this, the honest answer is if this entire year you only have $200 to dedicate to your own future, which is what preparedness really is, you don't have enough. You don't have enough. It's a starting point. It doesn't mean you should just throw your hands up and go, oh, the hell with it. I don't have enough. I'm going to die. No. No, it means that you're living like most people do when they first get out of college or first go out into the world after high school or leaving military service or something like that, where they're paying their rent, they're paying their electric bill, they're paying the put gas in their car, they're driving a beater, and they're just getting by. And if they didn't get paid for one week, they got a real problem. That's that's what it means. And that means that the first step in fixing your life, if your income level is that low, is, yeah, we can begin something, some cop, and you need to, right? Two boxes a minute, rice versus one. Two boxes of stovetop stuffing versus one. You know, two box, two cans of wolf chili versus one. Uh, this week, and then next week, do it again, and next week, do it again, and pepper it through. Build the depth of that pantry. If you lose a job, you can go out and look for a new job, and you can eat for a week or two or three after a few months of doing this. Okay? That, that, and, and the reason is so that you have the breathing room to expand your life, because you need to expand your life. I know what the caller really wanted. He wanted me to go, that's all it had, and now the world was gonna, zombies were gonna march next week. What would I do with the $200? But that's not the world we really live in, folks. We live in a world where there is a continuity of society. Society evolves and changes, and disasters and shifts mess up people's lives. And we need to build resiliency into our lives. So if I had $200 to start with, my goal would be to use that at the same time I'm trying to increase my life potential and start trying to find the next hundred. And then try to find the next hundred. And then try to find the next hundred. And I wouldn't necessarily say that every time I get a windfall, 
So if somebody says to me, hey, you know what? It's Christmas, and I run a Christmas tree lot. Come out, and I'll give you $100 a day for the last four days to work on my Christmas tree lot. You need some money around Christmas time? Go look for a Christmas tree lot. A lot of times, that's the kind of money that can be made. Cash, cash money. I'm telling you, I've got friends of mine that run Christmas tree lots. That's the kind of money they pay. Hundred bucks. Now, you're going to work 12 hours, right? You know, but I know people that said, you know what, I'm calling to work for two days because they were making minimum wage and they made more money working on the Christmas tree lot for those two days, cash they put in their pocket. Okay? So I'm just saying, there's always create, and when that money comes in, two, three hundred extra bucks, that doesn't mean I'm going to run out and buy Mountain House or even beans and rice and pasta. I'm looking at the structure of my life. And I'm trying to build up the resiliency and the structure of my life. And that is the way that we need to be doing all of our preparedness. You know, when I fired up my generator on Christmas Day, the power was out for a few days, and we ate hot turkey and hot gravy and hot stuffing, and I had the Christmas tree lights and the dish network on, and people said, well, that's not preparedness. Yeah, it really is. Uh, my son was in town. For two days, my son, who at the time until we moved back, I got to see about three times a year, and I wanted enough resiliency in my life that when he took the time off of his work, which is hard for him to do at his age and stage in life, and came up and spent time with me, that there was resiliency there so that no matter what happened, we were going to have a good Christmas. And that's as much about preparedness as it is about preparing for economic collapse. If you are not prepared to deal with a freaking two- or three-day power outage, You are not prepared to deal with the end of the world as we know it. And there's people that try to convince themselves that that's not the case, that it's true. That you, I got, I'm miserable for two days, but I'll be fine if the world ends. It doesn't work that way. It's about resiliency in your life. That's what I would do at $200. I'd start working on the next chapter of my life. Hey, Jack. This is Vince from San Antonio, Texas. Um, I really love the show. I was recently turned on to it by a friend, and um, I'm... I'm Continually amazed and, uh, and, and enjoying how uh, I'm getting some insight into some of the things that I've wondered about myself. Uh, one of your episodes, you talked about uh, something that hit very close to home. You were discussing how uh, the, the diet you were on, the paleo diet, and the, the, what you had been going through in some of the diet. And uh, it struck a lot of similarities to what I've recently gone through. Recently, I went from being 367 pounds uh, down to 250, 49 range or so, uh, which puts me in a better earshot of where I want to be as far as my weight goes. And I was amazed at the process and how quickly I was able to lose the weight. Now, it happened over a period of about a year and a half. Uh, but dropping that much weight over a year and a half is, is a very noble feat um, that you would think would take a lot of work. Uh, and as it turned out, what it really took was uh, me limiting the intake of foods that, uh, that just as you were describing, um, caused the body to... to Well, basically, get that uh, potatoes, bread, white bread, anything white, um, and and of course, I, I up to my vegetable intake. One thing that I noticed, though, that I think could even in, in, could add to what you were saying. One thing that was like a striking, monumentally realization for me was a simple fact uh, that people should chew. They don't chew their food. Now they do; they'll chew it enough. Most people chew their food enough that it will go down their windpipe or go down their their trachea, rather. Uh, they're, they're, uh, to their stomach, and, and that's okay. They, they accept that uh, they're getting their intake. The problem is that's why people fill up too quickly. They, they, they're so full, and they feel that they're expanding at the seams because 
they've eaten this food so fast that the body really it hasn't had time to catch up with it. And one of the things I learned that I could have uh, a, a taco or I could have a uh, something, a meal that was a little bit out of the ordinary every once in a while as an exception to my diet. But in all cases, I chewed my food to the point that it was masticated and completely dissolved where I could simply take a sip of water and dissolve it. And what that did was cause me to uh, not have hunger for as long. I would eat the food and then it would, uh, it, it, it would eventually uh, fill me up very quickly because I wasn't spending uh, a bunch of time just mounting on a bunch of food. So it, anyway, uh, it's, that is something that people need to have a big part of their day is to force themselves to chew their food completely and they'll be surprised with how quickly they will fill up uh, and then they don't have to eat the whole plate. And they feel full faster. And if you eat like that every consistent time, your body has time to catch up with your intake. But I appreciate your show. Apologize for being nervous. First time I've ever called. But thank you very much for what you're doing out there. And uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Well, thanks for the call. And it's a great point. Let me tell you, um, when I had Valerie Azanoff here in the, the country one time, and I was asking him, this is before I was doing paleo, about losing weight. We were sitting at a restaurant. He was just basically ordering whatever he felt like. Valerie Asanoff, for those that don't know, is a former uh, member of the Russian Olympic uh, judo team. Uh, he's a master at Sambo, a master of Sistema, and he served with the KGB. This guy is schooled a little bit on sports, nutrition, and you know, taking people out. And um, he has kind of dedicated his life to health and, and fitness with an Eastern philosophy. And when I say Eastern, I don't mean Japanese, Chinese. I mean Eastern Russia, uh, Siberia, uh, that type of thing. He's got uh, family out there, and he's uh, he's just a switched-on guy. And he said, do you see what I'm drinking? And I said, water. He goes, and I like vodka, and I like beer, and I'll have some of that in a bit. But while I'm eating, I'm going to drink this water, and there's lemon juice in it because of the acid, and I want to make sure I absorb my food. And he said, do you see how fast I'm eating? And I said, pretty slow. He goes, yes, you you were in military. You eat fast because if you did not eat fast, they take your food away. You're not in the military anymore. Slow down. And I'm like, I've slowed down a lot. And he goes, yes, but you need to slow down more. And his point was basically what this caller had just said. When you fully chew your food, your body is able to utilize 100% of the nutritive value of your food. Not just the raw caloric intake, but the minerals that are there. Because even in corn or, or wheat, there are minerals. And many times these minerals are, are failed to be absorbed. And a way to think about this, and I've used this analogy differently than I'm going to use it today, but it's a great analogy for the same purpose, but the same paleo concept, but a different way to think about it. I want you to think about a fire. All right. Now, when you think about a fire, there's a couple big logs in the middle of that fire. Let's call those logs your fat reserves. Let's look the fat reserves in your body. Fat in the body in excess of what's needed for basic human health is a reserve fuel source. That's why it's there. That's why the body puts it there. It says, you know what? It's a prep, it's a prepper response by the body itself. Hey, you could be starving one day. We have excessive nutrient now. Let's put it away. Let's hold on to it. And the poorer the quality of the food coming in, the more the body's going to do of this. So right, when you start to see our government implement capital controls, print more money, expand quantitative easing, etc., you start to up your prepping because you go the climate, 
that I'm existing in is becoming more precarious. When your body is eating high fructose corn syrup and rice syrup and, and, and cotton seed oil and crap, your body says, hey, hey, up it, up it, because this isn't good stuff. This guy must be, if he's eating this garbage, he must be starving. Where's the nuts? Where's the vegetables? Where's the, 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 the occasional fruit? Where's the squirrel? Where's the deer? Where's the, I, I, I don't know, you know, and the whole body's going, ooh, this is not good. I know you think I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. But, but that fat then being the logs on the fire. Now, as you're eating these different foods that spike your sugar level and bring up your insulin level, when you bring up insulin in the blood to a reading of 18 microliters of insulin or higher, your body cannot, will not, does not, will not burn fat, period. Nothing you do. Nothing you try, no matter how hard you work, will make a single fat cell burn until we come down to at least, say, 17.9 microliters, and it'll be real slow. And as we come down from there, the body will begin to burn fat. So people say, well, if you're running a caloric deficit, you have to burn fat. At some point, you do. But because of the caloric deficit, the insulin level drops, and it's during that period that you actually burn the fat. Okay, But it, it, it can't. It's metabolically impossible for the body to burn fat cells with an insulin level over 18 microliters. This is biochemical fat, right? This is not for me. This is from Dr. Greg Ellis, who's a PhD, who's who's been doing research into this type of thing for 40 odd years. Okay, so and this is scientific fact known all the way back into the early 1900s. We were able to measure these levels and make these determinations, and that's where his research work comes from and roots itself back that long ago. So back to our log in the fire. We put the log in the fire, and it's burning. The fat's burning. Let's say we have the fire in some type of contained area where we can start cutting the oxygen level down. If we cut the oxygen level down to where the fire goes out, the analogy sort of falls apart here. So let's say we cut the oxygen level down to where the log can only smolder slowly. Because you're going to burn some fat, right? You're going to burn some fat, even if you're not in a huge caloric deficit. At certain times when you don't eat and you go on a fast between your meals, that oxygen level is going to come back up in the form of the insulin level going down, and you're going to start to burn some fat. So we're sitting there and we're doing that. And occasionally we turn the oxygen up a little bit and we let it burn, and we turn it back and let it smolder. And we start saying, hey, let's put the right kind of wood in the fire. Because if, if we eat the right kind of healthy wood, the fire will start. And we start loading wood into the fire. But we don't up the oxygen level. We're going to get more and more and more wood, and all the other wood will do is sit there and smolder around it, and it'll produce a ton of waste. Right? And it'll be either wood or really poor quality charred waste ash. If we turn up the oxygen level, The fire will burn hot, all the wood will burn, and there'll be very little left in waste in wood ash. Body works kind of the same way. We keep the insulin levels down, and when you throw a log on the fire, you're throwing a dry log on a hot fire, it burns it. It burns it, and only when there's just some extra energy, the body will then maybe turn that into fat, or even at some times, I believe the body will say, I don't need this. The quality's there. I do, I don't, you know what? I can go have a beer tonight because we're not doing quantitative easing anymore. All right? That's how it works. Now, where does the concept of chewing fit into this? 
When I take my food, whether it's meat or a potato that I shouldn't be eating or a quality potato that I should be eating, like a sweet potato, and I fully, completely chew it and I swallow it, if there's any of the nutrients, minerals, and vitamins in that substance that I need beyond the pure caloric intake of fat, carbohydrate, um, and, and protein, my body can get to it easier. So it will put that into the system and say, here's all I need for my vital processes. Now, if I go out and I buy a Big Mac and I slam it, like a lot of people do at lunch, I'm in a hurry, <laughs> gone, right? French fries shoved and gone, and I don't really chew it well. And I don't take my time to chew it well. Even in that crappy meal, there are nutrients and minerals and vitamins in there. If there were none, you would die if you lived on it, and you can get really sick and fat and be in poor shape, but people live on this food, so we know that there must be enough in there to at least keep going. So the body says, well, I'm getting some of this stuff, but not enough. Tell this guy I'm hungry. Well, And, and the brain's going, he just ate a Big Mac and ordered chicken nuggets, a supersized fry, and slammed a Coke. You can't be hungry. And the body says, I need nutrients. Tell this ass clown to go get some more food. I don't care what, I don't care where. And he does. And the logs build up on the fire. When we stick to high quality foods and we fully chew our foods and we add foods that are, like we don't even think of that are superfoods, bone broth, minerals, nutrients, 100% bioavailable, and we put that in our body, all of a sudden we start killing hunger. And this is where I talk about this, and people think I'm crazy. I get up in the morning, two or three cups of coffee with heavy cream, small amounts of heavy cream, half an ounce a cup, so four ounces, no, what, three and a half ounces of heavy cream or less a day, no, two, maybe two ounces if I have four cups of heavy cream, and I won't eat till five o'clock. I'm not hungry. I'm not sitting here going, gee, I, I really like to eat, but I'm going to starve myself. Till I'm not Hungry. I, I can't put it any other way because the body's getting the nutrients that it needs. Now, do I look like a guy that belongs with my shirt off on the cover of GQ magazine? No. Could I if that was important to me? Absolutely. If I threw in some cardio, started lifting some weights, and led the same lifestyle, I could tone up that way. I don't want to be that guy. I am concerned with can I go out and dig 20 feet of trench in hard soil so I can bury wood in it and grow more healthy food. I don't care if you don't like the way that I look as long as I have the physical capabilities and the health to be able to do the things that I want to do and be healthy and active. But if you want to look like Valerie Asinoff, this style of eating, and when I bounce this off of Valerie, he says, I don't know why you call it paleo, there's food, right? And he's like, this, of course this is what you eat. Of course you don't eat rice and potatoes, That's what you eat when you're starving and you can't afford anything else, right? It was just common sense. You eat meat, you eat vegetables, that's what's good for you, duh, right? This is from a guy, you know, a Russian guy, it, it, with a totally different take and reasoning behind this. Just some thoughts and more encouragement to consider making this part of your life. I know we went 20 minutes in answers and two questions. I'll try to keep them briefer as we go forward. Hey, Jack, this is Barry from North Georgia. Long-time listener, um, I've got a question for either you or Stephen Harris. Uh, it's concerning water turbines. Um, just thinking about, you know, how Stephen doesn't like uh, solar and, and and he it talks about fossil fuels a lot. What what about water turbines? Uh, just setting up a simple dam, um, just uh, basically a paddle wheel. 
Uh, my grandfather built one as a grist mill, um, or I guess people don't know what a grist mill is, but just a regular mill when I was a kid to grind up corn. And I was thinking, well, why can't we put like a generator on it uh, and generate power you know, long enough just to charge your batteries and do everything else you need during the day? Um, just, just wonder what you and Stephen Harris think about it. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Okay, I have my thoughts on that, but I decided that that would be a great one to kick over to uh, alternative energy guru, Mr. Stephen Harris. So, Steve, what do you think of this? Barry from North Georgia, thank you for calling into the expert panel. And, hey, Steve Harris likes solar. It's just that I want you to think differently about it and do exactly what you've done, Barry. Ask a question. Say, what about microhydro? What will that do me? Now, On an installed per kilowatt hour basis, solar is the most expensive, but everywhere in the USA gets sunshine, at least for part of the year, but you get my point. Now, wind is cheaper than solar on an installed per kilowatt basis, but you have to be in a good wind area, and there aren't that many great wind areas in the United States. You have to be privileged to be in a great one. There's more good ones, but there aren't a lot of great ones. Uh, or your wind generator will just end up becoming a bird's nest like so many of them do. Now, microhydro is the cheapest to install on a per kilowatt hour basis, but it is even harder to find a great place to put a hydro unit than it is to find wind. Probably by a few thousand or ten thousand times less easy to find a good hydro space than it is to find a good wind space. So you got to be near a good source of water. And then you either have to have a fast-flowing stream or river, and then you also need to have what's called headspace. Headspace is the height of the water from the highest point you can get it to the lowest point where your turbine is. Now let's talk about power from water first. You're talking... What you were asking about was the old-fashioned water wheel, the old-fashioned type. There are two main types. There's an overshot and there's an undershot. Overshot is where the water is flowing into the top of the wheel and the weight of the water is pulling down the wheel. This is the best type of the water wheels. Then there's undershot. This is where you have a flowing river, a fast-flowing river going at a good pace, and you set the wheel into the water, and the flowing water turns the wheel from the bottom. This does not have as much power as the overshot. Well, it depends on your water flow. If you put an undershot near Niagara Falls, it'd work better than an overshot on a piddly little stream, but you get my point. Generally, water falling is going to have more energy than water flowing. Now, if you want to know all about these wheels and how to make them, I have a book called Hydraulic Motors, and I'll put a link to it at the very bottom of www.solar1234.com. You see the little picture. It's got a water wheel on it. It's a pretty book cover. It's blue and orange, and you can get it. You can get it there. Um, it'll tell you everything you want to know, and it'll show you how to make everything you could possibly want. Now, the best of the microhydro field, and that's what this field is called, microhydro, the best is the, drum roll please, the Harris Micro Turbine. Now, 
It's no relation to me. That's the name of it, the Harris Microturbine. These are the people in the world who make the best microturbine for hydropower. And a microturbine is by far more efficient than a water wheel. Just go look up a Pelton turbine, P-E-L-T-O-N turbine. You'll find them on Wikipedia. Plus, they're also in the book Hydraulic Motors as well. Now, you can make... These things, the microturbines are a lot more efficient than a water wheel. Okay, but you can make a water wheel out of wood. And the microturbine can cost you between a thousand and four thousand dollars, depending on the size and what you want to come with it. Hydropower is awesome. I love it. It runs for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As long as you got water flowing, you got power. Of course, your water flowing might vary from season to season, but it's there. It does not require sunshine. It does not require wind. It just works and works and works and works. If you have enough headspace and you'll need at least eight feet of headspace to even start thinking about this or a lot more, really. Uh, and then you have to have flow. And this is going to be in gallons per minute. Or if you get to really good turbines, cubic meters per minute or cubic yards per meter. And just because you got micro hydro, don't think that you got a life lightsaber of infinite power. Its power is dependent upon your head and the flow. But if you are in a great place for hydropower, it would be the number one thing to do above anything else. Okay? You, if you got hydro, that's your first thing. You do that before you do solar. You do that before wind. You do that before you do biogas. You do that before you do donkey piss. You do that before you do anything else. I'll put the link to Hydraulic Motors on solar1234.com, and at the very, very bottom of the page is where I'll put it. Don't forget that. And all of my past shows are there for you to listen to with just one tap on your smartphone or computer. You guys are great. Call in with some more questions. Oh, Barry, do me a favor. Email me your mailing address to Jack for me because he's got your original email so he knows it's you. I'm sending you a free copy of the book Hydraulic Motors. Thank you, everyone. I'll see you guys later. I have a few things I could add, but I'm going to keep it short and say microhydro is good. It's probably one of the best energy sources you can get, and I'll let Steve's answer speak for, for me as well to keep the show from going two hours again this week. Uh, I will add that um, Sepp Holzer, uh, who is uh, you know uh, world-renowned for his work with hugoculture, permaculture, and, and, and beyond organic farming, Runs 100% of their power on the Kermetterhof farm in Austria from microhydro, and there's no stream. Uh, he captures so much water in lakes and ponds, he can simply generate power at will when he allows water to move from upper locations to lower locations, but he's got a lot of fall to work with. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Todd, and I first tuned in when you were doing your show from your car, and I really appreciate all you do. Over the years, I've grown to value your thoughts on many topics, so here's where I'm at, and, and here's my question. In my opinion, having firearms for personal protection and not practicing with them is foolish, so I shoot mine regularly, and I try to maintain about a 1,000 rounds of ammo for each gun I own, which is you know, rifles, personal defense rifles, handguns, shotguns. My normal ammo supply lines are dried up, so I'm wondering if I shouldn't start conserving and shooting less often until things settle down. Given uh, today's uncertain political climate, is it wise to keep shooting in the hopes that supplies will return soon, or should I stop for a while and save what I have in case it's needed? God forbid, forbid for the real deal. Anyway, thanks for weighing in on this matter. 
I think there's a lot at play in that question, and I think we have to ask ourselves quite a few different things when we, we look at it. And uh, the reality is that the problem right now is that practice is very expensive, and if you've only laid up enough ammo to retain the reserves that you feel are necessary then you have an issue with burning up ammo you can't afford to replace right now. And notice I said you, you, and you, and I'm not really talking about the caller. I'm talking about anybody that's asking this question. Do I go to the range this week with two boxes of uh, of uh, 9mm and burn up 100 rounds training with my sidearm, or don't I, based on the availability and cost of replacing that ammo, and based on the fact that I decided that I want to have a minimum of 1,000 rounds, and I have 1100 and I'll be down to my minimum. And if I do it again the week after, where am I at at that point? And this is a serious question for people because, again, these minimums are yours. If I have a 1,000 rounds of ammo and I feel like taking a trip to the range and burning up 100 rounds of it, I'll do it. I'll do it, and it won't bother me. I'll come down probably to about 700 on most calibers before it starts to bother me. But that's my number. It's not the caller's number. So we then have to start making a decision. Am I willing to pay whatever it takes to get the replacement ammo in? Or can I find another solution that will let me obtain my goal of training and keep my cost down? Um, this is why, and, and, and trust me, this latest ammo scare will go away. When it does, you should get a good 22 long rifle sidearm and a good 22 rifle that functions as much like whatever you want to train with as you can get your hands on and you should go out and probably lay up 10,000 rounds or more of 22 long rifle because it's so flipping cheap when it's available right now everybody this is you got to ask yourself okay no one's talking about abandoned ammo well people laid up the ammo when they laid up um, the large capacity magazines when they went and said, I'm going to get another AR before the band comes through, if it does, and what have you. And people started st stocking up. Well, as they did that, they started buying lots and lots of ammo. That drove the ammo prices up. So everybody snapped to, well, I might as well get some 22. So at least I, and then the 22 long rifle is hard to get in large quantities right now. And when you do, you're paying three, four times what you would have paid just a few months ago. The reason I say to stock up on the 22 ammo is it answers this question. What do you do? You know what? You go out and you do your practice with your 22 long rifle, and you have plenty of duration and time to work with there with that kind of ammo supply laid up. And people say, well, it doesn't recoil the same, whatever. That's fine. So you run your training session, and you end your training session switching over to your center fire firearm, and you run... 20 rounds, 10 rounds, whatever, so that you don't lose the connection to the actual... But here's the reality. If you're training with a 22 handgun that functions exactly like your 9mm handgun or your 45 uh, APC handgun or, or what have you, when you have to use it in a crisis, your body is going to perform the same way. And the recoil ain't going to mean jack diddly crap. Everybody who's ever hunted big game knows this to be true. If you, especially if you funded like elk or something like that, and you, you know, you're carrying something like a seven millimeter magnum or a 300 Weatherby or something that has pretty brutal recoil on it, 300 Winchester mag, something you're getting up over hot loaded 3006, up into the, to me, up to about a hot loaded 3006 recoil is meaningless to me as I cross. So wherever your threshold is, if you've ever hunted with a rifle that's past where you start to go, you know, I, 
I can shoot this, but I, it, it's not real fun. I don't want to go through two boxes on the bench with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna be unhappy at the end of this. You get into that range to where you actually feel the recoil, and then you go out and you're in the field and you shoot a deer or an elk or something with that same round. You're not even aware of the recoil. You're not even because the body is in a totally and the mind is in a totally different state. The practice is about muscle memory coming to bear on the target, safety, when to shoot, when not to shoot, malfunction drills. That's the training. So I don't. So that first thing I can do is step down to 22, right? The next thing I can do, and, and people say this doesn't work, but it absolutely does work, is I can step down to something like airsoft or a high quality uh, air gun that shoots, you know, pellets. And I think that's another way to train. The next thing I can do is I can pick up something like a cert, right? S I R T uh, that we can get you a discount on, and you can get those from. Next level training, and I think the discount I get you guys on those is like 26% or something like that. Um, and you can get them in several different, very popular f formats like Glock 19, which is what most, I bet you most of the audience that carries, carries a Glock 19. I don't, but I understand why you do. Okay, So now I can train with that. And I've got real-time feedback and a cert for those who don't know. It's basically a, a, a mock-up weapon that functions exactly like the real weapon when you pull a trigger it shoots a laser out and a laser is a visible laser that marks the target so I can work and do force on force I can do a lot of things with that frankly they're safe to do with that that I can't do with an actual firearm and I can start doing that I can get my firearm out I can unload it I can completely clear it make sure it's clear and I can sit in my room with padding on the floor when I'm dropping magazines and I can do mags and I can train constantly at home without ever firing a shot or even loading the weapon. And I can do that over and over and over again. I can do the same types of things with my rifles, with my shotguns. And that muscle memory is just as important, and the functionality and knowing where to go and what to do is just as important as actually putting rounds down range. I'm not saying that it's more important. I'm not saying it's not important to put rounds down range. I'm saying we can balance that training. This is, And this is why I'm a huge proponent of Airsoft. And I keep beating up my buddy, Brian Black, over at ITS Tactical, who has one day what he wants is his own school uh, for firearms training. And I keep saying, do it now. Find a facility, that you, and don't do it with firearms. Do it with Airsoft. And he's like, ah, it's kids' games. Like, no, because it is real. It is more real than standing at a range and shooting bullets at something that doesn't shoot back at you. Is there less fear? Of course there is. But do you understand that's what you should be trying to train yourself to do? To behave, not stupidly, but boldly, when your mind's going, don't do it, hide! Run, hide, run, hide, run, hide! Right? You know? You're going to die, they're shooting at you. When you train soldiers, you fire live rounds over their head that are never going to hit them, you put them into a position where they can hear those rounds. <laughs> Overhead, look up, see the tracers, concussion blasts going off around them. And, and they get into a mode where when they really end up there, they follow their training. Not because it's the thing that your mind really wants to do, but you've conditioned yourself so you can, and we've determined that it's your best chance for survival when you're in a situation you'd rather not be in in the first place. So I would say a combination of continuing to train with lower-cost ammo Laying up ammo when times are good, specifically laying up large amounts of 22 and doing more training with that than anything else, utilizing airsoft, 
and doing force-on-force training with either search or airsoft weapons. With, with airsoft, proper safety equipment and proper rules of engagement. If you don't think you can get hurt with airsoft, you've never had somebody hit you, you know, in the neck at, at a range that is shorter than the rules of engagement should be, especially some of the CO2-powered handguns and stuff. I've seen pictures of a guy with like five airsoft pellets embedded in the back of his ear. Please be safe with this. Um, but if I ever actually set up a tactical training facility... I am actually more likely to do it with airsoft than I am with firearms. And I'll tell you why. I can bring people in for a weekend course and run a hundred scenarios that will put them into a hundred different places of shoot or no shoot situations that are real life with real time feedback. And I can't do it with firearms. I just can't. Just my thoughts. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Tim from Milwaukee. Recently, some folks and I started a prepper group around the Milwaukee area. I was curious on your take on group structuring. Is there an ideal number? Can there be too many or too few? Or is it more dependent on the skills, knowledges, and equipment each member brings to the table? Thanks for all you do. Um, a group can either be a really great asset or a complete disaster. And a lot of times they become complete disasters before there's actually a disaster that the group's ever needed for if things are done in the wrong way. And it also has a lot to do with what you mean on a group. If you mean a group of people that live relatively close to each other that say if something really goes wrong, we're going to look after each other and have each other's back, but we all kind of have our own place. If somebody's place is compromised, one of the other members of the group is willing to, uh, to take that other, you know, that other group member in will consolidate as necessary, but basically we're going to live day to day in our own space and our own time. And we're going to do that as long as is feasible. I think groups can work. Can there be too many or too few? Uh, too few, uh, maybe. Too many, definitely. It's all about the resources that are available for the group, and that's not just storing beans and rice and ammo. It's where's everybody going to live? Where's everybody going to take a freaking dump, just to be blunt? Where's everybody going to wash their hair? How many people is everybody going to show up with beyond themselves? Uh, these questions need to be answered in advance, I am not big on the compound group theory where everybody's going to share and get into almost a socialist version of prepping where, you know, everybody's going to, now a couple families that really get along that can, if you, here's, here's a, here's a question for you. People that are in your group, could you all on vacation for a week with them and share, you know, even if it's just another couple, a two bedroom hotel room on a vacation in a place you'd like to be without feeling like I'm really ready to be home and away from these other people? The answer is no, I can't do that. I would really feel like I'm done with these people now. They're probably not great for a group plan to hole up with in the freaking apocalypse. If you can't lay on the beach with them, drink margaritas, and, and, and look at the view of the sun setting over the Gulf Coast with them and, and want to be there more than a week with them, do you really think you're going to want to be with them in a, tr a tough scenario? So it's, it's a complicated dynamic, and I have different emotions on it. My biggest view for how groups would function well is to have people that say we're all part of the same relatively close geographic community, 10 miles, 15 miles or less. Um, odds are that in all but the absolute, total, complete end of the world as we know it, you're going to have that level of mobility at least on a weekly basis. 
and to form a group that says, you know, we've got a medic, we've got, we've got a tactical guy, we've got, and, and you have to, this is how you have to manage a, a, a prepper group. If you, if you want it to be re, re, realistic and practical, okay, it has to be managed a lot more like a special forces team, uh, than a compound stay in place, everybody else go to hell team. And I mean that in a way that most people won't understand. You'll say special force team, so they gotta be able to, Defuse bombs and, and tactical team movement and all that. No, no, not really. This is the real world here. What I mean is that if I really want to maximize the use of a special forces team, I can put them behind enemy lines or into an area they're not even supposed to be or will deny their existence thereof, and they become a force multiplier, not because they're all such badasses, but because they're smart, they're trained, and they have a clearly defined mission, and they go in... They use local currencies and the local language, and they form a larger group of the native population to a specific end. If you want a prepper group that's really effective, the plan needs to be, okay, when the shit hits the fan here in north-central suburban um, Sheboyganville, Idaho, Or Iowa. I always say Sheboyganville's in Iowa. I don't even know if there is a Sheboyganville, but I've, I made it up as a fictitious place so nobody gets offended. And that's our, you know, this little 10 mile circle of Sheboyganville, we want to make sure that we hold it together. And there's 20 of us. You are not going to do it with your 20 people. And if you think you're going to back into a little tiny 10 acre segment and stay there and survive, you're not going to do that very well either. That group needs to have a plan to hold together the area of operations that they exist in. And if there are certain parts of Sheboyganville that are bad parts of Sheboyganville that are going to go off the deep end really fast to know we're going to, we're going to abandon this segment. We're going to, this is going to be our rough gerrymandered district of operations during a catastrophe. We're going to be going and, and, and interacting with the natives, right? The non-prepper members and, and, and establishing commerce, establishing security. And you can only do so much of this preemptively, right? You, you can't go out and start knocking on doors and saying, Hey, we're the, they're going to make phone calls to the government if you do that. This is a plan to go in and basically loosely organize the community around certain things. And the currency, the currency of the local population at that point becomes beans and rice and bullets and band-aids. So that group, therefore, needs to be able to go out and not just use the stuff you've laid up for yourselves as currency, but to start letting people realize what they have. It's a very complex situation. And even as I'm describing it now, it's changing my whole dynamic on how to properly run a group. I'm actually creating some of this on the fly right here. And the more I think about it, the more it's the solution to the group dynamic problems that I've had in the past. Because I damn well know how many people have said, me and Billy Bob are going to get us a bug out location. It's also going to be a deer lease. And we can hunt there and fish there. And if anything goes wrong, we'll load the family up and go there. And Tim and Billy Bob, five years later, want to kill each other. And they've been best friends since high school. This is not what I want for any member of this audience. My belief has always been, even a true prepper community, which I'd love to build someday, on a hundred acres. Everybody on that piece of hundred acres should have a piece that's theirs to do with as they please. And anybody else that doesn't like what they're doing either needs to shut up or go find another group to be part of. On their piece. 
Now, maybe there's some common area, but your piece is your piece. And if you don't want to do anything on the common area, you ain't got to do shit. I think that's the only way it works and plays in with human nature, right? Because people say, well, that person's not contributing. They're contributing by being there. Because when there's a crisis, then people naturally coalesce. That's why they use crises against you, folks. Okay? When your government wants to blow something up that you would never let them blow up, they wait for or manufacture a crisis or agitate an existing situation to generate a crisis. And then when you think your way of life is threatened, you'll let them do what you otherwise would not. You'll make sacrifices or take actions you normally wouldn't take. This is how, in a breakdown society, the society dynamic works. And you can either have a group that's in there as a stabilization force to channel that new energy into something productive and proactive, or in the absence of that, that's where the society falls in on itself and everybody turns on each other. So a prepper group needs to almost be like a small-scale special operations civilian militia unit. And when I say that, I don't mean all about guns. If you talk to real special operators, real special warfare guys that have been behind the lines for long, long periods of time, they can tell you some harrowing tales if you get them willing to do so about firing weapons and getting shot at. But they'll also tell you the much deeper stories are how they carried out their mission without firing a shot. Okay, And that's, that's the type of civilian militia component that I'm saying that you would want to bring to a prepper group. How do we look around us and get a full assessment of everything that's available here so that when things really go wrong in a bad way, we can start telling neighbors, look, this is how we're going to do this. And here's the thing. You're talking about a power vacuum in one of these breakdowns. People that step up with a, with a real solution will get followed by 80% or more of the population. And that means that when the other 20% start causing trouble, you got 80% with you, and you can smack the crap out of the 20% that are the problem. In a power vacuum where everybody goes their own way, you get maybe 10% of the people trying to solve the problem. Less than 10% organized, though, can win over the 80. Those are my thoughts. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Charlotte. I'm a longtime listener, big fan, and I was uh, really excited after listening to your Earthship podcast. Uh, I've been looking for property in Texas for a long time. I already have one lot, but unfortunately it's in a POA and it won't work for anything that I'm looking to do. And one of my concerns is the fact that a lot of people have told me that you can't have a basement or a root cellar in Texas because it's mainly rock. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on that and how it may or may not affect an earthship build and any other interesting items that you might have. I'm really, I'm really interested in, in at least having a root cellar and I'm not sure if that's possible in Texas. Thank you. Actually, my my woes with rock aside here with uh, this ocean bed formation underneath our property. And as a side note, somebody asked me, why didn't you go dig a bunch of holes there first? Because by the time we found this place, I determined it was good enough. I still feel that way. I'm not complaining about the rock. It's just a design feature in the situation. But in spite of that, the reality is Texas terrain in general, rock is not an issue. Um I just had um, Mark Kirkwood uh, about the Earthships back on for like a little mini segment. I think it went about 28 minutes or something like that and on some follow-up questions that people had on, on the show I did with him, and we'll air that for you sometime next week. 
But his response with building what's called an air well, which basically is a rock formation that harvests water out of the air, was we have to bring rocks in because we don't have a single rock on our property at all. And there's parts of Texas that are literally like rock farms. I mean, you go to farm, and the first thing you got to do is remove all the rocks. And even though the soil's not that rocky, there's a lot of chunky rock on the surface that you kind of need to get out of the way before you can grow much. There are places like I live where you go a foot deep into the soil, and the soil's really great, and you hit this white rock. And in some places, that white rock is is actually easily broken with excavation equipment and easy to remove. And uh, there's other places where you're looking at dynamite to get, you know, six feet down into it or a, lo a long couple days with a jackhammer to put in a cable pull-through box, which we had to do in one location down near Benbrook when I was doing that kind of work. We had two guys spend two days to get one large manhole into the ground using two jackhammers. So it can be like that. But the majority of the state, especially when you look at from, uh, let's say, the Dallas, Austin, San Antonio area east, is clay. Clay is the reason people don't tend to have basements here, not rock. Clay holds water. Clay holds water very, very well. In most places in Texas, if you want a pond, if you have a place that water flows into and you dig a level hole and, and run a tractor around it a little bit, it'll fill up water and it'll hold and it'll still beautifully. So flooded basements become a problem. So that's an issue. So that's about site prep. And it's also one of the reasons we have so many foundation problems here in Texas. If you go to a lot of these suburbs, uh, half million dollar, three hundred thousand dollar houses, big giant McMansions, they're five, six years old, and doors start to stick. And at ten years, you're finding cracks in the walls. It's the clay because the clay absorbs water, it gets bigger, it, it contracts, and it moves. So clay is the bigger issue. My understanding with earth chips, as long as you build effective drainage into the situation, it's not a problem at all. So when it comes to Texas terrain, if you want to put something into the ground like a house where you have to do a major excavation, um, then it's really site-specific. There may be some areas, spotty areas with rock. As you move out toward the desert area, you may find greater areas of rock and, 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 and shell formations and things like that. But in the majority of the state, certainly the majority of the state with adequate rainfall that you'd want to live in, rock is the exception, not the rule. Clay is what you're looking at, and clay has a lot going for it with holding water and things like that. So when it comes to rock and rock excavation and building earth-friendly housing, as long as the elevation is such and the opportunity is such to create drainage From the property, you could build a hell of an earth contact structure, whether it's, you know, rock base and, and then some tires and monolithic dome or the whole thing's built into the ground. You could build a hell of a structure with rock, especially not chunk rock, but solid rock. Chunk rock? Chunk rock's not an issue. Chunk rock is lawn ornaments waiting to happen. You excavate it, you move the boulders around where you want them, and you use the dirt for your your construction, right? It's slab rock. It's when you when you have a big slab of rock and you run a small dozer into it, and the guy's standing two feet behind it, and the earth don't move at all because you're pushing on the tip of Mother Earth. That's when you got a problem. That can build a great structure. It's expense that runs into the issue then uh, because you're looking at bringing dynamite in. You're looking at bringing dynamite in to excavate that, and it gets expensive. You need specially permitted people. You need special permits. 
Um, and you really don't know what's going to happen in those situations until you start setting charges off. You don't know how hard, how complex, how long, uh, if you're going to find a fracture that changes everything, that makes things easier, or if you're going to find a, 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 you know, go from a layer of white rock to granite that makes things, you don't know. So you want, if you want to build a structure into the ground, unless you're daddy warbucks, you want to stay away from rock. If you got lots of money, and you got lots of money, Well, you might want to do it because you can build a veritable fortress. It's all about creating drainage using elevation and systems to get it out. But you're, you're, the, the people telling you the reason that they don't have basements here is because of rock is absolute nonsense. I don't know where those people got that information from, and maybe they live in a place with rock, and that's what they've assumed that the rest of the world, the rest of Texas is like what they have. Most places in Texas, and again, you're talking to a guy that has dug holes and, and drilled bores for three years of his life from one end of Dallas-Fort Worth to the other, from Frisco to Granbury. Most of that area, if you pull up an excavator and you start digging, you can dig as deep as a dadgone 30-ton excavator can reach without seeing any real rock. A rock here, a rock there, but not slab rock. And most of what you're looking at is going to be gray or black clay. Is your subsoil. That's, that's probably 90% of the area that I just described. You get into the rock up in the Eagle Mountain area, down in the Benbrook area, and spanning out from there, and all in that area. You can go to a two acre property and it's deep soil. You can go over 50 yards into another property and you hit rock. We had times when we were doing the cable installation, we were running our horizontal bores at three feet. So we're running 36 inches of depth, pulling fiber through the ground with these horizontal drilling rigs. We drill and we drill two or three days of massive production. I'm talking 2,000, 2,500 feet a machine. And you're just laying it out, laying it out. And your general contractor's going, how long is it going to be before you get the whole run done? You know, 20 miles of fiber. And you're like, oh, man, we'll be done by the end of the week. And then you go over one street to do another run. You put the drill in the ground. You start slamming the rod in the ground. And all of a sudden you hear, and you think it's a rock and it keeps going and you're two or three and next thing you know you're bringing a giant rock saw to make the run because it's the only way you can get into it so it's all about if you want to put stuff in the ground site selection and staying away from certain areas if you wanted to build a earthship structure I'd look for higher elevations down in the Benbrook area where you might have a good buildup or places that have been backfilled in, but I really wouldn't focus on that area. I'd look for areas away from the rock. Um, down in the Bastrop area, apparently you don't have a problem. That's why, uh, that's why they've, they've chosen that area for the project that they're doing, also because they can be left alone. Please make sure you're going to be able to do what you want to do wherever you buy land. To me, that was more important uh, than not having rock in my subsoil. It, it really was, because there's so many things I can do on three acres uh, beyond just digging a big, deep pond. There re there's millions of things I can do with it, but I can't deal with the fact that somebody says I can't have a chicken. So when I pulled up here and I heard, that was a sound of freedom for me. So uh, when I have... Mark Kirkwood on again for you next week. You'll hear that part of the reason you don't see a whole bunch of pictures of structures that they've built is they got two of them halfway built out in East Texas, uh, and they ended up with an HOA in the area that was basically very liberal and said you can do whatever you want, 
and all those people got voted out, and they got thrown out with the structures half complete. And as far as one that's been completed uh, in a different area, I'll let him answer that for himself. And they're now building another structure uh, that will be his house. Um, so that's an example of these guys lost tens of thousands of dollars um, because they let another layer of government infiltrate what they were doing. So they went in, they were told, yeah, you can do this. And then the bureaucrats changed. So as much as I don't like bureaucrats at a county level, they're more stable than bureaucrats at a, at a, uh, at a HOA level. So stay away from HOAs. You, and, and by the way, the caller said something about a POA. If you just mispronounced H and you said P by accident, that's, you know, stuff happens. A guy called the esophagus a trachea an earlier call. I know that kind of thing. But if there's something called a POA, I'd like to know what the heck it is. Anyway, uh, that's my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hello, Jack. I live in southeast Idaho. I'm looking to build a greenhouse. I want to build a rocket stove mass heater uh, to heat the thing. I'm familiar with how they work and, and build. What I don't know is um, should I try to heat uh, mostly the air in this greenhouse? Should I try to heat mostly the uh, uh, the, the soil uh, underneath where I'm planted, or do I do a combination of both, or? What do you think would be the best way uh, to, to, to heat that? I know, depending on how where you you put your ventilation pipe uh, and how deep, and there's different kind of designs you can do to kind of direct the heat. I wondered if uh, if you put too much too much heat into the soil, if that would uh, tend to cause the, the plants to dry out. Uh, I just wondered what your thoughts might be. Uh, on how to do that. Like I said it's, uh, I'd like to extend my growing season uh, here, uh, you know, maybe a month on each end of the growing season. If you have any thoughts on that, I would appreciate hearing them. Thank you. If you want to extend your, let's start with a simplest answer. If you want to extend your growing season a month on each end with a greenhouse, you need a greenhouse with movable insulation. You don't need to heat anything. Um, you need to look at uh, putting in some what I would call movable insulation. Again, these would be uh, something that you can basically leave the greenhouse wide open to the sky uh, during the day. And then something like uh, a tarpaulin uh, with bubble wrap or something to that sort uh, that you basically every evening kind of close up the greenhouse with to improve its heat retention capabilities and uh, grow crops in your greenhouse that can handle light frost. And you can probably take plants that can handle 30 degrees down to an overwinter them through, you know, 24-degree nights uh, that way. Uh, you don't need a rocket mass heater to do that at all. Uh, if you take that same approach and put some supplemental heat in there, I'm talking about, you know, a few, uh, a light bulb array. And uh, have, but with insulation, not with a wide-open greenhouse, Um, you know, if it's a, if it's a greenhouse you built with glass windows on one, the sunny side facing wall in the summer, I mean, these can be heavy duty curtains and some light bulbs in there. Uh, you'll be able to go a little bit further than that without making anything complicated and running one 110 cord out there. 
Um, so that would be, you know, your basic easiest answer. The next thing I'd like to suggest, if you want to get serious about greenhouse construction and do something beyond a basic hoop house or something like that. By the way, I have a great plan for using hog panels to build a basic greenhouse. Low tech, easy, simple. Um, that I'm going to be sharing with you guys on Monday. But if you want to go beyond that, if you want to do a, a and if you're going to be doing rocket mass heaters and all, then you're you're talking about some some you know putting a little bit of an investment in and financially and and certainly in time and effort to build a, a more solid, more permanent structure. I'd really like to recommend that you invest twenty four dollars and ninety five cents before you do this and get yourself a book by a guy named Mike Ehler, and it's spelled O E H L E R. His last name Ehler, but it's spelled with a O O E H L E R. The book is called The Earth Sheltered Solar Greenhouse Book. You can get it on Amazon, $24.95. Mike built a greenhouse in an area, I don't remember if it was Montana or Idaho, but in your neck of the woods. He was able to grow tomatoes in it into December, up up there in the, in the Great White Northwest, with no supplemental heat that was built. It, it's not an underground greenhouse. It's earth sheltered. I'd say it's you know, 50% below ground, and he was running chickens in there and some other things as well. And it is very effective without having to go through the problems of building any kind of supplemental heat source for it. Now that I've tap danced around it, let's go back to your question of building a, a, a rocket mass heater-based greenhouse and uh, what works best. Well, the reason I bring up the Earth-Sheltered Solar Greenhouse book by Mike Ehler is it shows us the answer. Why does Mike Ehler's greenhouse built south-facing and partially into the ground work better than a hoop house sitting in a nice big flat area that gets, you know, honest to God, more solar exposure all day long because Mike's gets great solar exposure in the winter from as the sun moves east to west, but if we have it sit down in the middle of an open area, uh, then we'll get sun not just east to west but a little bit from overhead and what have you, and we'll get more solar energy into the greenhouse because it's not about how much goes in, it's about how much stays in. With an in-house earth-sheltered design, the earth is holding the solar radiation and then releasing it in the evening and bringing up the ambient temperature a little bit in the greenhouse. If you set a hoop house greenhouse out, out in the middle of a field, it'll be nice and warm and toasty in there all day long, even in, in the coldest days of winter as long as the sun's shining. But as soon as it gets dark... You have almost 100% loss of heat, and very quickly the temperatures will equalize. That doesn't mean there's no protection offered. I, I can put lettuce in a greenhouse when the temperature is 20 degrees outside and inside, and it might do really, really well because it can handle 20 degrees. It doesn't do real well with a lot of frost falling on it and all and wind hitting it, so the greenhouse provides that protection plus the warm soil during the day to accelerate the growth rate right? and an elevated CO2 environment. So... It provides some protection, but it's not going to take tender crops through a frost because the temperature is going to drop. When I put it into the ground, that changes. So when I do a rocket mass heater with any type of a greenhouse, if I heat the air, it's the least efficient method of heating. Heating air is less efficient than heating a, a thermal mass. So what I would do is I would build a great big berm, either to the back, the side, or the middle, depending on how I want to lay my greenhouse out. And I would run my piping, my thermal mass, right through that berm. And I would make it really thick. I'd have at least 6, 10, maybe more inches of cover on top of that pipe. And I would plant my most tender plants that I want to get through the winter right into that berm. 
And that way I can go in there and put a couple handfuls of wood in in the evening in the greenhouse, heat up that ground, and that thermal radiating mass will then take my greenhouse through the evenings very, very deep into the winter. You can probably grow just about anything throughout even the coldest winter as long as you heat it every day, and you use a lot less heat that way. That doesn't mean there's no benefit from heating air. So usually you see these rocket mass heaters They go through a uh, thermal mass, and they also go through, um, let's call it a, a radiating heater where you have uh, two chambers that cause a secondary combustion. That dumps most of its heat into the, the ambient air temperature. That's the thing you set a tea kettle on and, and, and boil yourself a cup of evening tea while you're getting your, your rocket mass heater going and getting your thermal mass heated. Um, and you need to be really careful about where you locate that so you don't do things like melt the wall of your greenhouse. And you might want to put some of your tender stuff that really likes warmth somewhere near that area there. Uh, but you're getting into a construction level behind, beyond my expertise because I haven't built one of these things. I just know how they work and I know the theory behind them. But if you want your greenhouse to be effective, you want to be dumping the heat into a thermal mass. And you might also want to do something like put a great big uh, bunch of water, black water containers, tanks in there. So that water also builds up heat. It'll be, build up heat all day from your from your solar gain, but it'll also slow the discharge of its heat because you're running the rocket mass heater. If you want the biggest bang for the buck, that's what you would do. You would do an earth-sheltered greenhouse running an earth-sheltered solar mass with your secondary combustion chamber heating the air because that's just part of how the system works. And if you did all of that, You, you, you would do just fine, and you'd get a lot more than two months of extended season. You could pretty much grow stuff year-round. It's all about how much you want to put into it. But the simplest answer, if you just want a couple extra months, some movable insulation and a basic greenhouse uh, with a little bit of secondary heating, uh, which could be something like, uh, again, a, a light bulb array. Really, that'll do more than most people realize. All right, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Mike from the Backyard Pioneer. I just had a quick question for you. I was wondering if you think there's anything we can do about the pervasive uh, smug attitude we seem to have when it comes to the preparedness survival community. You know, I'm here on Long Island, and we got whacked hard again by another uh, unexpected storm, and a lot of people seem to think that there was people didn't need to be out on the roadways, but this storm came up so fast, at least for the eastern part of Suffolk County, that, uh, you know, we were forecasting for 6 to 12 inches, and we ended up getting 30. And I just, you know, you see pictures online, and people always have comments of dumbasses or whatever like that. And I want to know what you think we can do to bring more people to our way of thinking when we come off as smug douchebags every time we seem to get something like this. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah, it's real easy for some idiot in Georgia to go, well, they told them snow was coming, they shouldn't have been out on the road, and they, they don't understand that in the Northeast, snow's not a big deal, and when the weatherman tells you, we're going to get a foot of snow, the average person says, so what? You get a foot of snow all the time. Uh, it, and it's also the case that there are situations where, yeah, people should have been prepared. Hell, my whole life is based on telling people to be prepared, but a lot of people aren't going to be prepared. And a lot of people end up having to work a job even when they know they shouldn't because they either are going to work the job or they're going to lose the job. And saying, well, just stay home ain't so easy when that means your kids are going to go without food. And that's the kind of thing that actually happens. 
And those are the kind of choices that actually get made. So what can you do about the smug attitudes, uh, the jerk asses that, that think that it'll never happen to them and, and everybody else is just stupid? And the answer is not a lot. Not a lot. Uh, you, you can't do a lot about it because then you're basing your happiness on somebody else's life and attitude, and that's just never a good way to live. But what we can do as preppers is every time it happens, everywhere we see it happens, call the asshole out on being an asshole. When you're in a forum and you see somebody say something like that, you know, remind them of some old, like, in, you know, Native American proverb, never, never judge a man till you walk a mile in his moccasins. And don't tell us it can't happen to you, and don't tell us you're Captain American superhero because you're full of shit. You're full of shit, and you have no idea what it's like to be that person. And even the most diehard preppers, most of us weren't born into prepping families. Most of us had parts of our lives where we were just as exposed as everybody else. We woke up to the reality, and we started to build up our preparedness. And the person you're talking shit about, Mr. Asshole, used to be you. That person used to be you. And just don't tolerate it. And that's about all you can do. And the only reason not to tolerate it It's so that people looking at the prepper community will realize that we're not all made up of a bunch of jerk-ass, jackass, crazy-ass, tinfoil hat-wrapped idiots like that. That we are people that want to help. That we are people that will go out and help our neighbors. That's, that's all we can do. Like most things, when it comes to ethics and morality, you don't spread your ethics and morality by beating somebody over the head with it, by telling them, you're wrong if you don't do it my way. You spread ethics and morality by demonstrating them. When people see it demonstrated, then when somebody says, well, that doesn't work, or that's stupid, they go, wait a minute, it, it, it did work, and I was glad it was there, and this might be a better way. So, it, it, I mean, it's almost like asking a much bigger political question, how does the United States of America, that's supposed to be the greatest bastion of liberty and freedom ever created under the sun, even though we've fallen far from that, spread that message of liberty. And you don't do it by going to other places and forcing other people to live your way. The best way we could do that here in this country would be for us to say, we're going to stop telling other people how to live, and we're going to actually follow our own dadgone constitution, and we're actually going to live the way that our founders planned for us, and we're actually going to be an example of that liberty. And if you don't want to have it too, that's fine. Just don't come mess with ours or we'll thump you over the head. And you'd be surprised how many nations would go, hey, gee, maybe that is a good way to live. Some of those that seem the most staunch in opposition to us would likely become the most quickly won over, and there'd be a hell lot, lot less wars to fight. You might wonder how I got there from the question. It's a microcosm. You can't control that. We can't make our nation act that way. But as preppers, as libertarians, as freedom-loving individuals, we can. We can simply say, when you're doing something stupid, hey, you're doing something stupid, I just want everybody to know that because you call yourself a prepper and I call myself a prepper, doesn't mean we agree on being a jerk ass and being stupid. I think that's stupid, and most of us think that's stupid, and you can be stupid, and you can be arrogant, and you can be a jerk. Please do it on your own in a little island. Over here in the real world, we're a bunch of people that look after each other, and we have sympathy for others. And the reason we prep is we know this can happen. So we're not about start running our mouth about how dumb these people are when we used to be them. And if you never were, if you grew up in a survival, 
prepper-oriented family, and you've been taught this stuff since the day you were born till now, and you've lived in a prepared life your whole life, guess what? Your parents did it, you didn't. And without them, you'd be just like those people. So those of you that think that way, pull your damn head out of your ass and realize it is our mission as preppers, if we want to be as prepared as possible, to make as many others as prepared as possible. Too many preppers take the, the stand of, I want a place to go when my house burns down. And what we need to be taking the stand is, I want to prevent the house from burning down. It's better to have fire suppression systems, fire retardant materials, smoke alarms, fire extinguishers, not put lit candles into your, uh, on your Christmas tree, okay? Not store gasoline, uh, soaked rags in your drawers, right? It's a lot easier to prevent your house from catching on fire than just having a plan to do with what you do if your hand, and you, you have the final plan. Well, if it does burn down, this is what I'm going to do. When you take that back up to society, The way we keep the house from burning down is getting as many members of this society as prepared as possible before something goes wrong so that we can all look out after each other and all take care of each other and all be each other's sentinel in a time of need. And those of you who think that that's a pipe dream or corny, you're entitled to your opinion. I have a job to do. I and most of the members of this community are going to continue to do it. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. My name's Lisa, and I'm from Oxford, Connecticut question for you. How do you suggest we do a recon of Texas from Connecticut for the purpose of relocating? Um, we're looking for a neighborhood with a good school system. My husband needs a pediatric job. Uh, I need a place with trees. No HOAs, of course. Not really high humidity and like-minded, freedom-loving, happy gun owners. Uh, we plan to commute uh, or continue to garden, uh, raise chickens and maybe add some goats too. Um, we have been to Texas once last summer for the Restoring Love event, and we were honored to meet you and Dorothy at the Survival Expo. Um, i got to tell you, I want to thank you. Your show has been instrumental element in our awakening of how badly we need to get the heck out of Dodge. So God bless you, Jack, and thanks for your help, and I hope to have a Texas zip code soon. Bye-bye now. All right, well, I do believe I remember exactly who this was, and I'd love to see you down here with your family as permanent residents uh, of the great state of Texas. And let me answer your question with this. Uh, the biggest thing you need to do is come spend some more time here. I mean, you really do. You need to take like a week vacation and spend it all over the area that you're most interested in, and you need to look at you know, what, what kind of climate you want politically and uh, geographically and everything else. I would say that I would advise just about anybody moving here to seriously consider, <coughs> excuse me, staying from the hill country east where it actually rains. San Antonio, Corpus Christi, I'm giving you the big cities so you can think of the geography. Houston, Texarkana, Dallas, Fort Worth, that whole area in there. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Texas. You can take a big city like Dallas. Now, Dallas is a fairly large city. And whether you're working in, in East Dallas or North Dallas is going to have a, maybe a bigger dependent upon where you want to live than whether you're working in Dallas as a whole. Because how fast can you get out of the rat race and what have you? And can you work in a, like, can you already start being out of the rat race? Can you live or work where the average person lives that works in the central area that's in the suburbs? And the answer is a lot of times yes. Pediatric? Uh, pfft. 
the whole damn place. I mean, anywhere you go, there's an opportunity for that, especially, you know, in the, the suburban areas and things like that. So the beautiful thing is you go from highly urban to suburban to semi-rural to rural really, really fast around here. It's a little bit expensive in that first beltway of the rural headed back into the suburban, that, that kind of the closest you can be because there's so many people that want to live that way here. They want to have a bass boat in their backyard with nobody bitching about it. They want a great big shop building. They want three or four acres, but they have to drive into town every day to work. And there's tons of people like that live that way here. And that, that makes that, that first kind of edge the most expensive. And the problem with it also is that it's also the quickest to fall to urban sprawl. When we step back from there a little bit, you start getting into areas that are highly immune to urban sprawl. They're just not going to really fill up that far out, and the prices begin to go down. And it's all over the place. I mean, it's it, if you want to go north of Dallas, uh, as you get into like the Denton County areas, as long as you get out of the Louisville, Carrollton suburbs, all of a sudden you can find all kinds of rural property up there. Um, if you're in the Fort Worth area, you had... Uh, You head northwest out of Fort Worth up our direction, and you go to places that, I mean, it's hard to believe how close the city really is really fast. You get out into unincorporated areas of Tarrant County and what have you, and nobody gives a damn what you do. So it's it's all over. I would say that your best bet is to kind of look at your job opportunities, the, 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 the geographic climate that you're looking for. You know, do you want to be down in South Texas where their winters are even way more mild than they are up here where I'm at and have closer access to the ocean and things like that? Well, then, you know, your, your suburban area that you're looking for, your, your professional life to be is somewhere Houston, the woodlands, all of that. And it's just massive, right? And you go out to an edge and then come back into work, right? So that's, That's how I would look at that. Or you can do the same thing with Dallas. You can do the same thing with Austin. You can do the same thing with San Antonio. And then don't overlook smaller communities in places like East Texas, like Palestine. If you want to go a little bit more small town, there's plenty of business opportunity in a place like Palestine, Texas, um, and, and out that direction, Tyler, etc. Um, there's also a lot of little towns out there. You'll pick up the names of them. They sound like they got something going on. You go out there, and it's like downtown is 15 buildings. Right, so you can spend a lot of time driving through East Texas and and think, well, I'm going to a town, and when you get there, there's hardly a grocery store. So you've got to balance your needs and your wants. I find the happiest people that live in rural environments live relatively close to environments where it switches back over to suburban, and there's shops and there's people and things like that. You're just far enough out to live the life you want. And the good news about Dallas-Fort Worth. If you take the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and back off it just a little bit, and it looks like an anatomical feature that I won't name on the air because maybe some of you don't want to even know, but look at a map of Dallas-Fort Worth, and it's kind of an embarrassment as to what the actual Metroplex looks like. Um, but you get outside of that perimeter and back off one more layer, and pretty much that whole dadgum circle qualifies for what you're asking for. I mean, the whole thing. Um, that's why, you know, I, I like being here. That's why we were willing to look as close as we eventually settled on. Uh, because of that. If I had my way for best bang for the buck, 
I would try to look in the in the areas south of like Mansfield and Benbrook and things like that, and I would try to locate my professional life somewhere on the Fort Worth side. There's less traffic, lower land prices, etc. But you're probably going to have a harder time finding high speed internet. And so, so how important is that to you? For most families, day to day stuff, checking email and stuff like that, satellite works just fine. If it's important to your business, it, it's going to be an issue. Now, there's stuff down that way. The other thing you got to watch out for in Texas, especially in these these areas where you start to make that transition, is trailer park hells. I got nothing against people that live in trailers or even trailer parks, as long as they're decent people living in decent conditions that take care of what they have. If all you have is a single wide trailer, you can still pick up garbage out in front of it. You can still fix something when it breaks. You can still cut your grass or, or do whatever you have. It's the ones that are like, you know, 15 migrant workers living in a single wide. Cars turned upside, just, just, they're, they're here. You know, every other trailer's ripped apart. Things like, and then the next one has a family of 20 living in it. Um, You got to watch for those, and you don't want to be too close to them, and they do exist. As soon as you drop another layer out, they go away. They're right in that same belt area. They're a threat in a situation where the shit hits the fan, but so is living in suburbia. All right? In fact, those people are more likely to go to suburbia to take things because there's higher density, easier to rip off there. And most of those people that live in those areas are really people just trying to make, a, make it and get by and get something better, to be fair to them. Most of the people that are on the government dole don't live in situations like that. They have, you know, nicely provided project buildings given to them by the taxpayers. I call it a gift. And government calls it a benefit. It's not a benefit. It's a gift from your fellow taxpayers or from your, ta your tax paying brethren. Okay. Cause you're not paying taxes if you live in those things. Um, and again, I have no problem with people that do if it's a step up and out. So people that live there their whole lives, I have a problem with. So usually these places that are run down like that, the reason people are living in those situations and conditions is they are doing it on their own, and it's a step in, the, in, in an upward momentum direction. So they're not as bad as you would think, but I wouldn't want to own property too close to one because it kills your resale value, and in a desperate situation, it is a, it is a liability. It's all trade-offs, but I think this is a great state to make a stand in. The more people we bring here like you, the better off we all are. There's plenty of opportunity. There's plenty of land. There's plenty of affordability. Taxes are low, and in some cases non-existent, depending on what kind of tax we're talking about. Construction is low cost. Housing is low cost. The business environment's positive. I'd love to have more of y'all here. Uh, if I can do anything to help anybody, please let me know. But don't ask me the best place to move to, because my answer is going to be whatever area has that has what you want when we looked to buy a place here i didn't say i'm targeting the eagle mountain area what i did was say this is where my wife wants to be let's draw a circle an hour and a half two hours around there and if it's inside that circle and gives me what i want it's good enough that's how we picked it so it's about if you find a you know start looking for a job in advance you find a job somewhere i promise you anywhere you find a job In Dallas or Austin or Houston, there is a rural property within an hour of that. If you're willing to, if you're willing to commute half an hour, 45 minutes to an hour to work every day, and I'm not talking about traffic-based commute, I'm talking about geographic-based timing, and you might have to get some flexibility with your hours and come in early, leave a little early, or something like that. Um, if you're willing to do it, it's doable in any of these areas. 
And look for a job that's not downtown Dallas, not downtown Houston. There's so much activity in the outer layers. And mom, you got a, you got a, a kid that needs to go to the doctor. Mom doesn't want to drive downtown to take kid to the doctor. Almost, there's plenty of opportunity for your husband with pediatrics as far out as you want to go and still have some population density. The closer you get to the outer edge, the, and then you don't have the heavy traffic commute. That's what I would do. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma, and I have a question about some fruit trees. Uh, recently, I planted some plum and uh, peach trees out on my farm, and uh, the nursery that I bought these trees from, they told me after I got the trees planted and, and watered in and everything was good, to cut about a third of the top out of the tree. I had never heard that before. Um, I was just curious if that's something that you're normally supposed to do, and if so, why do you do it? Uh, I went ahead and, and did what the what the nursery suggested, and I cut the top out of the tree. It was really hard to do. These were about four-foot trees, so it was really hard to cut a foot off the top of the tree. But I'm just curious. Maybe you could uh, give me a little information on this. Uh, thanks, Jack. Bye. Yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? You buy this tree, it's about six foot tall, and all of a sudden they want you to cut it down to four foot tall. <laughs> all that growth is gone. But when you think about a six foot tall young tree that you're planting in the ground, that, that couple feet that you're cutting out of the center of it, it doesn't really have a lot going on, does it? It's just a big stick sticking up. Think about it this way. If you had a pepper plant, Uh, that only had about four leaves on it but was a foot tall, how many peppers do you think it would produce? And if it did, do you think it would be able to hold itself up? And the answer is it, it probably wouldn't. It would just fall over. If you think about whenever you get seedlings and you're starting your own seeds and they don't get enough light and they just start growing too fast vertically, right? They don't get any strength to them. They become spindly and they fall over. And you either have to prop them up or backfill them with dirt and get some light on them. And a lot of times you lose them. Uh, it won't be that bad with a tree, but that's the same thing you're trying to prevent. You think about a fruit tree, unless we're talking about something like a columnar apple, which is a, a columnar apple, folks, it's just a, it doesn't get hardly any branches at all. It grows straight, thick stalk, and apples just form right on the edge of it. They use them in high-density uh, planting areas. Unless we're doing that, well, a fruit tree has to be bushed out, right, to spread so that it has all this branch work and structure. So when we take that top off, We start encouraging lateral growth. And that's that's what we're trying to do is build structure and shape into the tree. And I probably need to get somebody on. It's like a, a fruit pruning expert. They can talk about the difference between pruning something like, let's say, a plum tree and an apple tree. Because you have different ways that they're done. But a basic understanding is, is, is like this. If you look at a branch, especially in the spring, early spring or, or winter, you'll see buds on it. Some of those buds will sprout and grow, some of them won't, some of them will grow a little bit, some of them will grow a lot. But if I come and I cut that branch just above a bud, well that branch wants to continue its path. It'll basically force that next bud down to break and be a main growth bud. It'll put out a new growth. So when I cut the top of that tree, that first bud there is going to start growing vertical and grow really, really strong and continue the path upward. When I have a branch coming out to the side, if I cut that branch, right, 
the next bud down, the bud below where I make my cut, that's going to break hard and it's going to grow aggressively. So when I'm doing a pruning of a lateral branch, if I want it to continue outward, I want to prune it not so much just the length, but I want to look at my buds and I want a bud that's outward facing. If I want to encourage interior growth, then I want it to at some point stop and start growing that tree up on the outside periphery. I want to take a bud that's maybe pointing more up. Right, and I definitely don't want generally is a bud pointing inward. I get too much like with the branches tangle. So that's what you're doing. You're stimulating outward growth, and you're stimulating new growth, and, and that's why they're asking you to cut that down. And the reality is, if you don't cut it, two years later the tree will be smaller than it would have been if you've cut it. That's not always the case that every tree needs to be pruned that way, but they probably gave you good advice. And I think you kind of have to look at each tree. And I'm a guy that I know how to prune a tree, but it's hard for me to tell you how to prune a tree because every tree is a little bit different. If you ask a sculptor, how do I sculpt marble? He's going to say, well, if the grain goes a certain way, how big is it? What, you know, what are you trying to make it look like? And maybe this piece of marble is not even good for making that particular statue. That's kind of how I see trees are. You kind of look at it and you just have to see like, well, what do I want this to look like? What does a mature apple look like? And which branches can I train? Which branches can I remove and cause buds to break that cause that to happen? But they gave you good advice. I know it's hard. And I'll finish up with a quick story. When I was a kid, uh, my grandfather had these old um, Concord uh, grapevines. Old, old vines. They are probably 70 years old when I was a kid. And huge, thick vines. And I would go you know, spend time up there in, in the spring, maybe take Easter, uh, Easter break or whatever, go, and he'd have me prune them. And the, the growth from the last year was just everywhere, huge vines everywhere. And there were bushes I had to do this with up against the house and all. And he'd say, cut them back to here. And you're cutting like 80%, it seemed like, off. And he just seemed like, Why? But I would do it, and then when I went up for the summer, they'd be covered with grapes, you know, and you'd be picking them and eating them and making jelly and having a neighbor up the street named Buddy Shoemaker. He used to make us wine every year in exchange for some of the grapes, and, and it was amazing how productive they were. And the same bushes that I had been there for, for you know, for Easter break to, to, to prune low were now huge and growing and flowers all over them, and the same with the rose bushes and all. And that's what encourages the growth. That's the difference between just letting it go and encouraging it to grow a certain way in a certain pattern. Here's the sad part. So I left home for almost 10 years after I got out of the Army. I hadn't been home. And uh, those vines are sitting out there. And my dad just never really cared. It just wasn't a big deal to him. And he just didn't prune them, didn't prune them, didn't prune them. And I went home, and it was just a massive tangle on this old trellis. And I said, did they grow last year? He goes, a little bit. I got out the pruners, and I pruned them. I pruned them back the way they should have been for 10 straight years. And I don't even know if he was lying. Because to me, it looked like they were pretty much gone. And they're dead now. They couldn't grow that way. They weren't designed to grow that way. Or more accurately, they couldn't live for 100 years that way. So a lot of times when we're pruning things, we're changing the structure Because even though we work with nature with permaculture, we also use our God-given reason and logic to say, how can we actually improve things? How can we make a vine that would normally live and propagate itself and continue to grow outward with edge, grow stationary for a 100 years? And the answer is by pruning it. Well, how can I establish an apple tree or a pear tree 
that has a branching habitat that grows strong and thick. I don't want it to grow up too fast, right? We can grow up too fast. There's a life lesson there. I want it to grow up slowly so it's stocky and thick. Do I want a pepper plant that's six feet high and really thin and one pepper on it pulls it over to the side? Or do I prepare a pepper plant that's three foot tall that's thick and like they've got a stalk on it as big as my thumb or bigger? Well, obviously. Well, trees work in the same way. It's the same structure. Thick, stocky, and strong. That's what we're looking for out of fruit trees and nut trees. Um, now, some of the native roots, you know, not grafted varieties that grow really, really tall, basically at some point they kind of branch out and know what to do with themselves. But as we're fitting these things into landscapes at certain sizes, dwarfing rootstocks and all, we need to have a hand in the creation and the shaping of what we're doing. Or we end up with a great big tall tree with no robustness. That's why you were told to prune them. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you